It's hard to think of a more universally beloved song than Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Its simple yearn for a better world has transcended its individual context. Written in the height of the Great Depression, socialist composer Yip Harburg's lyrics captured his earnest hope for a more equitable society. Today, nobody thinks of the New Deal when they hear it. Instead, the song endures as an optimistic reminder that life can always be better. Despite the endless covers, Judy Garland's 1939 rendition from The Wizard of Oz remains a benchmark which all are compared. Bafflingly, Oz's studio heads at Metro-Golden-Mayer, MGM, initially wanted to cut the number to save time. Associate producer Arthur Freed threatened to quit if they took it out. He made the right call. The American Film Institute named Somewhere Over the Rainbow the greatest movie song of all time. Solid pick, but that is a hard list to narrow down. So many classic stories rely on key musical cues, like A Star Is Born's tale of a young woman plucked from obscurity to become a mega-famous singer. Or Rocky's underdog anthem for the rising athlete who beats skeptical competitors to become the best in their field. Or James Bond's alluring world of international intrigue, daring escapes, and boozy seductions. Meeting you with a view to waking face to face in secret places, feel the chill. All three franchises have killer soundtracks that have launched at least one number one hit. Rocky and A Star Is Born have launched two, actually. Those movies have more in common than their chart fortunes. Like The Wizard of Oz, all three were produced by MGM, which means that they all were subtly impacted by Julie Dominey. Dominey did not work on any of them. She was long dead before movies were even invented. Yet her handiwork shaped those stories thanks to a wildlife that rivals all those plots combined. The defining feature of MGM's iconic logo is the roaring lion named Leo. Just above the apex predator is a golden ribbon of film stock imprinted with the words Aris Gratia Artis, or Art for Art's Sake. The phrase was coined in 1835 by Theophile Gautier in Mademoiselle de Maupin, a novelized retelling of the life of Julia Dobney. Mademoiselle de Maupin's sprawling edge-of-your-seat adventure ride of sex, danger, and bravado laid the groundwork for many future drama conventions. Historians now consider it an essential forerunner to the modern comic book. That only makes sense because Dominey was a real-life Wonder Woman. Like Dorothy Gale 266 years later, Julia Dominey longed for a life beyond her family's farm. Dominey's estate was a bit fancier than Dorothy's Kansas shack. Her father managed the stables for King Louis XIV at Versailles. In between his duties, he trained his daughter how to ride horses, gamble, fistfight, and fence. By 12, she could best anyone that challenged her to a duel. In 1687, Daubeny fell for master swordsman Saran. The couple fled to Paris after Saran killed a rival in a back alley duel. On the run, the lovers transformed themselves into traveling performers. 
Across the countryside, they held fencing demonstrations with Domini often dressed in men's clothing. When male spectators doubted that a woman could pull off such skillful maneuvers, she just fenced topless. Sometimes they added insulting songs into the routine to add extra humiliation for their opponents. Dobbini's natural talent for music was evident to anyone who heard her. One listener declared she had the most beautiful voice in the world. She was quickly offered a role at the Opera de Marseille. In the span of a few months, she went from an untrained street performer to the lead actress in the most suspected opera house in the world. Performing under the stage name La Mopin, Dobbini starred in dozens of operas, often playing strong women or goddesses. Of course, it helped that she had near-photographic recall and rarely needed to read her lines more than once before committing them to memory. She amazed crowds with her innate musical talent and flair for the dramatic. In one performance, she bit her co-star's ear until it bled. In another, she acted out her character's suicide by literally stabbing herself in the chest. She certainly knew how to put on a show. One person taken by Dabonet's showmanship was Cecilia Bortigelli. The two women started up an affair. The scandalized Bortigelli family tried to end the relationship by shipping Cecilia to a convent. That didn't start Domini. She simply joined the convent too and kept the affair going on. The lovers hatched up a plan to escape. They dug up a dead nun, put the corpse in Cecilia's bed, and burnt down the nunnery to cover their tracks while the couple fled to Paris. Domini quickly grew bored with the relationship she had just committed arson for, and the two broke up on the road. Once the other nuns realized that it was not Cecilia's body in the blaze, Dabini was sentenced to death in absentia. To add insult to the charges, she was tried as a man because it was unfathomable that a woman could have committed such an act. As a death sentence hung over her head, Dabini petitioned King Louis XIV for a pardon. Reportedly amused by the swashbuckling opera singer's exploits, the king obliged. Dabini was off the hook, but it was not long before she found herself in trouble again. In her most infamous encounter, she crashed a royal ball dressed in men's clothing. There, she romanced and kissed a young noblewoman that three noble suitors had spent the night trying to court. The angry men challenged Dabini to a duel. She soundly defeated all of them. Some historians report that the three men died. Most say they merely got their butts kicked. Either way, it was still illegal. Louis XIV had recently outlawed dueling, so she fled the law once again. After a year in hiding, she returned to Paris and begged for a second pardon. It turns out there was nothing to pardon for. The law had only banned men from dueling. After that close call, Dabini had tired of her wildlife antics. It has been estimated that she killed or wounded at least 10 men over the course of her career. She retreated from public life, and in 1707, she died at the young age of 37. There was no records of what killed her, nor of where she was buried. History tried to forget her. Her reputation was not re-impraised until the 20th century. As a result, there was a great deal of scholastic contention surrounding her story. Everything from dates to names to entire sections of her life cannot be confirmed. What we do know is still amazing. Over 300 years ago, Dabini lived the life she wanted, despite everyone telling her she could not. Perhaps some of them had a point. You shouldn't burn down nunneries. Yet surely she was not the only one who challenged gender and sexual norms at the time. For every Julie history remembers, thousands more likely existed hidden from view. As the hit theme to another movie that bears her handiwork prints it, we remember her name. Hello and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, 
And with me is the Wizard of Odd, Nate Youngman. This week we're going to look at the curious origins of famous pop culture expressions. To get started, here's Act 1, A Whole Lot of Problems. First time in a long time. Let's get Trail Famidorian with it. In 2020, Drake released Dark Lane demo tapes. Driven by the sales of a recent Hot 100 number one single, the album tied a legendary pop diva's long-standing record. The album spun off Drake's 38th top 10 hit, equaling the run previously set by Madonna. In 2018, Megan The Stallion released Tina Snow. The album launched her into the mainstream and she quickly became one of the genre's defining stars. In 2017, Luke Combs released This One's For You. The album, driven by the sales of a recent country number one single, tied a legendary country diva's long-standing record. The album's 50 weeks on the top of the country album charts equaled a run previously set by Shania Twain. The album launched him into the mainstream, and he quickly became one of the genre's defining stars. So it goes. Besides those cosmetic similarities, the three albums have little in common. But whether they knew it or not, they all shared an uncredited co-writer, astronaut Jim Lovell. All three contain songs that... Quote, a saying he unwittingly coined nearly 50 years earlier. Houston, we have a problem. Largely thanks to the 1995 film Apollo 13, the line, Houston, we have a problem, has become a cultural catchphrase. The sort of pithy cliche one uses to sarcastically downplay how bad something is. Though when Lovell first uttered the phrase, he could not have been more serious. He was staring death in the face. On April 11, 1970, Commander Jim Lovell, Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes and Command Module Pilot Jack Swigert launched what they thought would be the third mission to land on the moon. Apollo 13 would not meet its target. Superstitious numerologists had reason to worry. The digits of the mission's launch date, when written out as 41170, add up to 13. The rocket took off at 113, or 1313, on a military clock. Two days after the launch, on April 13th, Jack Swigert, NASA's 13th astronaut, flicked the wrong switch and the capsule short-circuited. The power surge threw off the regulators and ruptured the oxygen tanks. The capsule, 200,000 miles away from Earth, quickly lost air, water, and electricity. Without a way to circulate oxygen, CO2 built up to near-lethal levels. The cabin temperature immediately dropped to below freezing. To make matters worse, as if they could be, they all had to get back with a module designed to support two people, for two days that suddenly had to support three of them for twice as long. Yet, remarkably, they pulled it off. All three men lived and safely landed into the Pacific four days later. It is such an incredible story that when Universal screened Ron Howard's movie adaptation 25 years later, test audiences complained that the ending was too unbelievable. Nobody could survive all that. Apollo 13's Amazing Rescue was a highly collaborative effort. Hundreds of participants had a hand in the operation. Not one person can take sole credit for saving the crew. But we want to discuss two unlikely side characters who each played a crucial role in the astronaut's safe return. First, Gene Hackman. There's got to be a morning high. 
after if we can hold on through the night oh man gene hackman rules one of the great actors of the new hollywood era the man had so many stellar films the royal tannenbaums unforgiven hoosiers superman the conversation even underrated films like scarecrow and night moves two of my favorites are all stone-cold classics in my book. Hackman won an Oscar for French Connection, which was directed by the recently departed William Friedkin. Rip, uh, big man, one of my favorites. We spent part of an afternoon with him at the stairs for Exorcist. True, one of the only times I've ever been starstruck in my life. Hackman has since retired, so we aren't going to get any more from him after Welcome to Mooseport. Man, what a film to go out on. As an actor, he does not really have much of a musical legacy. The only number one hit to come out of one of his movies was... The Morning After, Maureen McGovern's theme to the 1972 disaster flick, The Poseidon Adventure. Three years before Hackman rescued fictional ship passengers from peril, one of his movies inadvertently prevented a real-life calamity. In 1969, Hackman starred alongside Gregory Peck in the long-forgotten space drama Marooned. If the film is remembered today, it is mostly for inspiring Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. The oddly prescient movie follows three astronauts, led by a pilot named Jim, who are left stranded in a broken spaceship and the coordinated effort to bring them back to Earth. The day Apollo 13 launched, a group of NASA employees caught the film in a local theater. One of them was electrical engineer Arturo Campos. As Campos left the show, he wondered what he would do if Apollo 13 faced a similar crisis. He spent the rest of the night working out potential solutions for this hypothetical emergency. Little did he know he had just given himself a head start on the exact problem he would be facing in a few hours. When he got called into work, he already had a solution at hand. Campus remembered a scene where ground control tells Hackman how to rewire electricity into the fuel batteries. Inspired by the scene, Campus came up with a similar method to transfer electricity between the lunar and command modules. The early breakthrough saved time in a moment where every second was precious. And that is how Lex Luthor saved the day. Once they had electricity, the crew still had to pilot back to Earth. The program that got them back home was invented by a second person we want to highlight, Judith Love Cohen. A young Judith Love Cohen had twin passions, ballet and engineering. She excelled at both. By 19, she danced for the New York Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company while studying at Brooklyn's Engineering School. She continued to dance for the rest of her life, but engineering soon became her focus. In 1958, she started working for NASA. The high point of her career there was creating the abort guidance system. Designing the software proved to be a challenge. One day while working on the project, she rushed out of the lab to give birth to her son. She printed out the problem to work on in the hospital. While in labor, she called her boss to let him know that she had found a solution. Five months later, the software she designed that day directed the crew back into the lunar module when all of the systems failed. Things also worked out well for the son she delivered that day. He grew up to be a little man called Jack Black. For the past 30 years, the endearing goofball comedian and musician has entertained millions. I mean, who could hate this guy? He's great. While he made his name in major blockbusters like Jumanji or Kung Fu Panda, I prefer a number of smaller gems like Orange County, Be Kind Rewind, and Bernie. 
if you have a high tolerance for pretty bad 2000s comedies, I recommend Saving Silverman and Envy. But he's also pretty good in 1998's Enemy of the State, which co-stars fellow improbable Apollo 13 hero Gene Hackman. When he is not acting, Black makes music with Kyle Glass in the band Tenacious D. As a result, many of his best films center around music, like High Fidelity and School of Rock. It took a long time for Black's musical career to happen. He owes his stardom to another infamous scientific near-disaster in a strange musical outfit called The Theater of All Possibilities. We are but men! You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. John P. Allen, then going by the mystical nickname Johnny Dolphin, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's mystical, was something of a renaissance man, a Harvard graduate turned metallurgist, union organizer, beat poet, and indigenous anthropologist. In the late 1960s, Dolphin Boy founded an idealistic musical, artistic, and acting collective known as the Theater of All Possibilities. Over time, this theater group devolved into an abusive cult. Under the leadership of Sharon Gans, the troupe was accused of habitual beatings, forced marriages, child abuse, and neglect. In this tumultuous window, Gans achieved her only moment of mainstream exposure when she played Billy Pilgrim's wife, Valencia Merble, in George Roy Hill's 1972 adaption of Slaughterhouse-Five a book written by Kurt Vonnegut, who we mentioned earlier, who is also my favorite author of all time, who I have an altar in my office of him. And you know this episode is about famous pop culture expressions, so he's written a lot of your favorites, I would imagine. Like my mantra, which is, please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Like listening to this program. When not acting alongside aliens, the rest of Theater of All Possibilities were preparing to become ones. In 1969, Allen's troupe founded Synergia Ranch, a self-sufficient homestead in the New Mexico desert. With nothing around them besides the night sky, the communal group turned their eyes to the cosmos. The organization adopted apocalyptic undertones, convinced that ecological doom was imminent. Humanity's only hope for the future lay in the stars. The group embarked on a plan to colonize the moon and Mars through a series of glass enclosures. The first step in that process was figuring out how to replicate Earth's ecosystems on inhabitable land. Helpfully, Alan knew the perfect benefactor, billionaire oilman Ed Bass. Alan and Bass met over their shared interest in futuristic architect and similar eccentric Buckmeister Fuller. Fuller's connection to mysticism traces back to 1927. After a series of professional and personal failures, Fuller attempted suicide. As he stepped towards the edge of a cliff, a voice later prescribed to an angel told him not to jump and that he was destined for great things. Spurred by this last-minute conversion, he went on to prove the vision correct. In his 1967 book, An Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth, Fuller proposed a planned community of advanced bunkers that shelter humanity from ecological disaster and nuclear war. The survivors live in a series of interconnected geodesic domes, an architectural choice that inspired Disney World's famed Epcot Ball. Alan and Bass took Fuller's text as a prophecy. They commissioned Fuller to bring his vision to life with their new project, Biosphere 2. Ta-da! Biosphere 2 was one of the most audacious scientific endeavors ever undertaken. Fuller had designed a massive temple of steel tubing and glass panes housing an artificial, materially closed ecological system where researchers and scientists could study different biomes. 
Its three acres contain 3,800 species of plants and animals in miniature farms, rainforests, wetlands, savannas, deserts, and even an ocean coral reef. Due to the closed-off nature of the experiments, these windows required a nearly airtight seal. Biosphere 2's launch was staged like a space mission. 2,000 people, including big names like Steve Gutenberg and the cast of Cheers, Oh, I'm sorry, big names? Attended a party the night before to celebrate the scientific marvel. On September 26, 1991, eight Biospherians, four women, four men, all white, donned blue jumpsuits custom designed by Marilyn Monroe's former dressmaker and sailed themselves in the two-year journey into the unknown. The world eagerly watched on, hoping to see the dawn of a new age, and then it all fell apart. The biosphere was much closer to Lord of the Flies than the Garden of Eden. There was not enough sun to raise crops, so most of the species died off pretty quickly, including pollinators like hummingbirds and honeybees. Without many plants to regulate through photosynthesis, oxygen levels decreased faster than anticipated. Whereas Earth's atmosphere is about 21% oxygen, the biospheres fell to 14.2%. The air turned so rotten that the prolonged exposure could cause permanent brain damage. The plants they did have struggled to feed the eight-person crew. For instance, it took two weeks to grow enough coffee beans for a single cup. Then I'd just quit drinking coffee if I was them. The crew relied on easy-to-grow root vegetables for most meals. They ate so many sweet potatoes and carrots that their skin literally turned orange. Things were so dire that the participants lost 16% of their total body weight. Gee whiz, huh? I don't know why you didn't get the heck out at that point. The meager rations and near starvation caused infighting and psychological issues. Yeah, no duh. The team split into two bitterly opposing factions. One group felt that it was important to keep the biosphere completely closed from any outside elements, while the others felt the success of the individual experiments and the researchers themselves should be a priority. The disagreement quickly devolved into physical confrontations. Cups were thrown, supplies were looted, people were spat on. It was safe to say this was not going as planned. While John Allen preached about lofty ideas like trying to rebuild society, Biosphere 2 was ultimately a private-owned project looking to turn a profit. The board itself had spent $200 million on an expenditure that failed to generate sufficient breathable air, drinkable water, adequate food, and driven everyone mad. Just 10 months into the projected two-year experiment, the advisory board suggested they just end it. That's when Ed Bass decided to bring in someone to get the project back on a legitimate money-making track. The person he reached out to was a young Goldman Sachs venture capitalist who had recently become flushed with cash. The investment banker had earned a fortune by negotiating the acquisition rights for the production company Castle Rock Entertainment. Instead of a lump payment, he optioned for a stake in five Castle Rock TV shows, including the one they threw in because it looked like it might not be renewed for a second season. It was called Seinfeld. Seinfeld, man, what a show. The biggest and arguably best TV comedy of the 90s. It ranks as one of the most funniest things ever put on television. I still laugh at episodes that I've watched uh, dozens of times before. And if you want to talk about famous pop culture catchphrases, every week they coin new great lines. Yada, yada, yada. No soup for you. Hello, Newman. Double dip. Regift. And what's the deal with... That's all Seinfeld, baby. The show is perfect and has brought so much joy over the years. The only problem with it is that the profits of each episode went to that Goldman Sachs banker, Steve Bannon. Yeah, that's Steve Bannon. Without Seinfeld, would Donald Trump ever become president? It's a stupid thing to think about, but probably true. 
Like many people who worked with the future Breitbart editor and presidential advisor, Biosphere's two crew hated Steve Bannon. Under his new management, Bannon sacked everyone that had been previously in charge, including Allen. Because of his background, the crew members worried that he was there to make money rather than advance science. Two former crew members, fearful that Bannon's cutbacks might jeopardize their safety, decided to end the project for good. On April 4, 1994, Mark Van Thillo and Abigail Alling broke into Biosplinter 2 and smashed the thing to bits. Before they were arrested, they managed to break the air seal, the ventilation system, and the glass panels. The experiment stumbled on for a few more months, but the mutiny essentially marked the end. Bannon brokered a deal with Columbia University to take over the operation. The dream of biospheres on Mars were over. Biosphere 2 is often remembered in the popular imagination as a spectacular failure, but it was not the complete disaster its reputation should suggest. Scientists still conduct research at the facility. Thanks to data collected on site, scientists discovered conclusive proof that high carbon dioxide levels in the oceans can kill off coral reefs through acidification. So something good came out of this insane fever dream after all. And something terrible did too. 1996's Biodome. In the movie, one of only 11 to score a 1 out of 100 on Metacritic. Pauly Shore and Stephen Baldwin are trapped inside the experimental enclosed environment with a team of scientists after Shore mistook the laboratory for a bathroom. Yeah, I can see this is going to be a great movie from there. For the next year, they wreak havoc with wacky hijinks like farting in the artificial brain generator and throwing a raging party. At the end of their stay, they stop William Atherton from blowing up the dome with bombs placed inside coconuts. I watched it to prepare for this episode. While it's not the worst movie I've ever seen, uh, there was nothing good about it. What the movie lacks in funny jokes, a cohesive plot, and artistic merit, it makes up for an eccentric casting. Shore's mother is played by Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who in 1974 was famously kidnapped by the Liberation Army and forced to rob a bank. Roger Clinton, the younger half-brother of then-President Bill Clinton, played Professor Bloom. Aussie pop icon Kylie Minogue played sexy oceanographer Dr. Petra Van Kant, a role she later called the worst thing she's ever done. Most importantly, Tenacious D made its first on-screen appearance as two hippie-ish folk rockers in an environmental rally. The cameo was a band's mainstream debut, paving the way for their own cinematic ambitions. Over the next few years, the comedy rock duo grew into a beloved cult act with some success beyond their dedicated fan base. In 2006, the theme of their seminal movie, The Pick of Destiny, peaked at number 78 on the Hot 100. They have charted four albums on the Billboard 200 over the course of their career, two of which also hit number one on the Rock Album chart. In 2015, they won a medal Grammy for their tribute album, Ronnie James Dio, This Is Your Life. Now Black mostly alternates between the band and acting. Ironically, it was the later role that gave him his biggest hit ever. In 2023, Jack Black sang the slow piano ballad Peaches for the soundtrack to the Super Mario Brothers movie. The stirring ode about the love between a princess and a tyrannical fire-breathing lizard really resonated with people. The song reached number 56, making it Black's first solo charting single on the Hot 100. It broke into Australia's, New Zealand's, and the United Kingdom's top 40. In the Netherlands, it went as high as number 4. While Black's mother turned to the stars, he actually became one. Peaches, 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 You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, great story that all my favorite actors, Gene Hackman, Jack Black, Polly Shore, three greats. Now it's time for my act. Act two is a shame. 
200 years after the first one, Philadelphia set off another revolution. Record moguls Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, with their brilliant engineer and arranger Tom Bell, created a new strain of R&B. Their lusher, more orchestral, groovier style was called Philly Soul. Today, Philly Soul is too often dismissed as a footnote, a transitional fossil between 60s Motown and 70s disco. But for a stretch in the middle of the decade, it rightfully dominated the charts. Flagship artists like the OJs and the Spinners scored a handful of the top 10 hits. British hardball experimenters like Elton John and David Bowie tried to do a hand on the sound on some of their most acclaimed works. Hall & Oates kicked off their imperial streak with albums heavily indebted to the hometown music scene. A tier below those eventual Hall of Famers were a slew of lesser but still worthwhile stars like The Stylistics, Three Degrees, and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Far below them was WMOT. WMOT, or We Men of Talent, were in the same business as Gamble and Hoff, but it's a stretch to call them competitors. The minor label only scored two big hits throughout its existence. The first was with the label's earliest signee, Blue Magic, a group we talked about in depth in our Dwight York episode. In 1974, the band peaked at number 8 with the lovely Sad Sack Pearl Sideshow. A year later, Major Harris, the former frontman for Delphonics, another really good band, took his sleepy slow jam, Love Won't Let Me Wait, to number five. And it's because of you that love won't let me wait. No. The brief success did not lead to bigger things. Neither artists ever returned to the top 10 again. Neither did WMOT. With the records they were putting out, that's no surprise. WMOT was not known for its quality control. Some of the acts on their roster included the unmarketable band Sexual Harassment, novelty singer Mary Wilson, who with songs like Telephone Man and Peter the Meter Reader made a career of singing about all the utility workers she wanted to have sex with. And vampire-themed rapper Count Coolout, who on the song Rhythm Rap Rock, raps about a private investigator named Barnaby Bones, who has sex with the nursery rhyme character Little Bo Peep over samples of Jingle Bells and the Pledge of Allegiance. The label was as horny as it was baffling. WMOT stayed afloat despite putting out such terrible records, because they did not care if anyone bought them. They were more focused on selling cocaine. Yes, count cool out. This who I be. I was rapping through the rhythm since the age of three. And at the age of six, I learned how to mix on the turntables and with the sweet kick. As far as anyone knew, Larry Lavin was a total square. He lived in an old money conservative hamlet best known for its horse shows. His neighbor was President Eisenhower's son. He worked as a dentist 
entertaining his patients with some light magic tricks while he drilled. But underneath the polo and khakis lied a hardened kingpin. Lavin started drug dealing in college. When he got busted selling pot on campus, he moved on to harder substances. Apparently the Liberty Bell was not the only crack in town. <laughs> Using his Ivy League connections, he sold to a network of dentists, lawyers, stockbrokers, accountants, and teachers that the press dubbed the Yuppie Conspiracy. Between 1978 and 1984, his drug ring distributed 175 pounds of cocaine a month across 14 states, D.C., and Canada. The largest cocaine empire on the East Coast. His operation pulled in $5 million a year. Lavin had to hide the money somewhere. In 1980, former boxing promoter Mark Stewart agreed to help launder Lavin's funds through a series of shadowy investments, none of which could be called a success. At the behest of Stewart, Lavin purchased the minor league basketball team, the Lancaster Red Roses, and renamed them the Philadelphia Kings in a rather tasteless tribute to Martin Luther King. Like WMOT, Lavin was not looking for all-star talent. He just wanted people who could show up to every game. Even that was too much of an ask. One player who auditioned at the tryouts was a Brazilian who happened to be vacationing in Philadelphia at the time. When it was his turn to shoot, he pretended to have diarrhea and ran off the court instead. Athletes talented enough to avoid pooping themselves were hardly ready for the NBA. The team only won 17 of their 40 games. This losing record was due to mismanagement as much as the player's limited skill set. Thanks to constant reshuffling, matches were stationed in faraway locales like Anchorage, Alberta, and Billings, Montana. On one trip, the team accidentally flew to the wrong Canadian province and drove for 24 hours just to lose the next day. Even home games were a challenge. The arena's locker room and court were falling apart. One game was delayed when a player jumping up for a rebound landed on his heel and crashed right through the floor. They had to pause the game to go find a carpenter. Thankfully, only a few people were there to witness it. The arena never attracted more than 250 fans to a game. This was hardly the money-making venture Lavin could use as the cover, so they just got rid of it. Seven months after the Kings lost their playoffs, the arena caught on fire. It eventually came out that Stewart hired James Horbro Holt, a member of the notorious satanic motorcycle gang, the Pagans, to burn it down for the insurance money. However, Holt only managed to burn the roof, rendering the building virtually unusable. Though Stewart's accomplice succeeded the second time around, the insurance company refused to pay out. Man, you can never find good help these days. With the Philadelphia Kings out of commission, Lavin turned his focus to WMOT. The label was working exactly as he intended. From the outside, it appeared to be a legitimate business, churning out albums of questionable quality for years. They could keep the ruse going as long as nobody paid too close attention to the books. Then, in 1981, the worst thing possible happened. They actually had a hit. In 1973, Frankie Smith overheard a few girls chanting a nonsensical coded language while skipping rope. The girls inserted the syllable is after the first letter of random words. For instance, lamp would translate to lizamp. It was a pretty simple game. Smith thought the gibberish line made a playful herk and released a song built on the gimmick. 
Nothing came of this vision, but he held out on the idea, convinced that it had potential. For the next seven years, he was an in-house songwriter for Gamble and Hoff. However, he had to be let go when the label got caught up bribing DJs to play their songs. Desperately out of work, he applied for a job with the Philadelphia Transportation Company, envisioning himself as a singing bus driver. He never got a call back. While circling ads in the Help Wanted section, he heard the familiar sound of girls skipping rope. He was reminded of the song he came up with all those years earlier. He pulled out an overdue gas bill and started scribbling down a twisting narrative about a man who walks 15 blocks to work after missing the bus. He incorporated the pig Latin-like trick into a few lines. To make it even more ridiculous, he sang it as if he was a frog. <laughs> when he presented this new song to the engineer to record it, the engineer thought it was so stupid that he quit his job. Undaunted, Smith took matters into his own hands. He loaded up the trunk of his car with hundreds of copies of the newly pressed record called The Double Dutch Bus. Smith and his friends drove from city to city giving out copies of the vinyl single to clubs, radio stations, and college campuses. His gambit worked. Soon it was everywhere. Though it only peaked at number 30 on the Hot 100, Double Dutch Bus spent four weeks on top of the Billboard R&B chart. It sold 2 million copies in less than two years and became only the second record to be gold certified in two separate releases. Smith started opening for big acts like Cool and the Gang and Rick James and making the rounds on all the major music shows. There was plenty of money to go around, or at least there should have been. Frankie Smith never escaped the trap of one-hit wonderdom. Double Dutch Bus remains his only Hot 100 appearance. That makes sense considering the song he released as a follow-up. His next single was The Auction, another novelty tune about a form of transportation, this time a horse. Or at least, I think it is. There are so many double entendres in it that at one point the metaphor slips away from Smith entirely. I'm pretty sure that he accidentally admits to having sex with the horse at one point. Not his best career move. Uh, no, that's for sure. Surprisingly, this was not a hit. Smith spent the rest of the 80s trying to recapture the lightning in a bottle magic of his first hit to diminishing returns. <laughs> I'm just talking about my horse, y'all. WMOT also struggled to cash in on double Dutch bus fluke success, but not for lack of star power. In 1981, they put out It's Good to Be the King, the debut single for Mel Brooks. Now there's someone who is endlessly quoted. I can probably recite the lines from the movie The Producers by heart. I'm more of a young Frankenstein man, but when people talk about his culture impact, I doubt they bring up his rapping career. On the song, the legendary comedian raps, yes, raps, about the French Revolution from the perspective of King Louis XVI. The number ends the only way it could, with a guillotine slicing off the ruler's head, his decapitated body, rapping all the while. The song did not do well stateside, but absurdly went all the way to number two in France. Those folks <laughs> surely can hold a grudge. Because of its international success, Brooks earned the unlikely place in history books as the first white rapper to go gold. My neck on the block, they took off my wig, and it occurred to me this was the end of the day. They asked me, did I have any last words to say? Well, I raised my head and I hollered, hey! These fluke successes only delayed the inevitable. In 1983, WMOT filed for bankruptcy. Lavin and Stewart's greed had gotten the best of them. 
they had ran through most of the money they meant to divert back into the drug trade. As a result, Smith never saw any of the royalties he earned off his million-selling song. Smith alerted the IRS about this clerical error. After looking into WMOT's finances, the IRS forwarded the case to the FBI. Thanks to Smith, the true nature of the operation quickly came to light. There's a real important lesson there about always keeping your word. Yeah, good advice for any wannabe drug kingpins in the audience. Lavin did not face justice right away. He escaped from the law for two years by hiding under the alias Brian O'Neill. He only got caught again thanks to another musician. This time, an animatronic bear. One of the letters he sent to his mother mentioned how much he liked Billy Bob Broccoli, the bass-playing, overall-wearing brown bear that serves as a mascot for the Chuck E. Cheese knockoff Showbiz Pizza. (laughs) They should have arrested him just for that. Authorities narrowed the search based on the offhand remark to a particular Virginia Beach location. Lavin was finally arrested. He served 18 years of a 42-year sentence. By the time he got out, Smith had already rewritten rap history. Double Dutch Bus coined one of the defining quirks in hip-hop lexicon. Almost immediately after it was released, rappers started dropping random isses into their rhymes as an homage to Smith's song. By the turn of the century, the slang had fully ascended onto the charts, appearing on blockbuster albums by then-hot rappers like P.D. Pablo and Juvenile, and top 10 hits by Jay-Z, H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, for cheesy my knees, keep my arms so breezy, Ludicrous, for shizzle dizzle, I'm on the track with the big snoop, dizzle, let the handy trickle, down the beat with a ghetto temple, and Missy Elliott, it even crops up on Till I Claps, the fan favorite track on The Eminem Show, the best selling rap album of all time. But no rapper was more synonymous with the turn of phrase than Snoop Dogg. Fittingly, it was Snoop who finally took Smith's words to number one. In 2004, the same year that Levin was finally released from prison, the man he had screwed over all those years earlier had inspired the biggest hit in the country. I got a living room full of fine dime bristles, waiting on the pistol, the dizzle, and the shizzle. G's to the bizzack, now ladies, here we kiss her. When the pimp's in the crib, ma, drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot. When the pigs try to get at you, park it like it's hot, park it like it's hot, park it like it's hot. A year later, Smith's handiwork returned to the top spot again. Gwen Stefani's chanting on the secret Courtney Love diss track, Holla Back Girl, followed the cadence of Double Dutch Bus. All of these records secured Smith a legacy, even if it was mostly uncredited. Frankie Smith died in 2019 at age 79. He may have never gotten the profits he deserved, but he got something resembling justice. He should be talked about as an important trendsetter who created an enduring part of hip-hop lore. Because that's what he is. All right, uh, good job, Nate. All right, looking at the clock on the wall, it seems we have gone a bit over time. Uh, Do you have anything to close us out real quick? Why, yes, I do, Nate. So in our section about Frankie Smith, one of the songs we played was Chingy's 2003 hit Holiday Inn. Obviously, the song's title is in reference to the hotel chain of the same name. 
Weirdly, the man responsible for turning Holiday Inn into a global brand was another musician, a little man called Elvis Presley. When the Sun Records manager, Sam Phillips, signed Presley away to RCA, they gave him a $35,000 release fee. Adjusted for inflation, that comes at $389,000. Phillips used the funds to invest in an upstart hotel chain his friend and fellow Memphian, Kemmons Wilson, was launching. Thanks to Phillips' early endowment, Holiday Inn was able to expand, eventually becoming the lodging empire we know today. But the success of Holiday Inn could not have existed without a different, much sadder hotel. The man who created that institution did not live long enough to see his impact. Well, since my baby left, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that Heartbreak Hotel. Heartbreak Hotel launched Elvis and basically everybody that came up after him. For a generation of listeners, Elvis's first number one record was also the first rock and roll song that they ever heard. John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards, Elton John, and Robert Plant have all cited the song as the moment they decided to become a musician. It even got the presidential seal of approval when Roger Clinton's half-brother Bill, remember him from Biodome, performed it on the Arsenio Hall show. That absurd PR move that probably won him the primary after he was accused of having an affair with Jennifer Flowers. Quite the legacy for a song about complete destitution. November 1953 was a rough month for Alvin Krolik. His wife had divorced him. The already poor Krolik resorted to robbery to pay off his bills. Ashamed of his behavior, he walked into the police department and confessed to the crimes. The judge, convinced that Krolik gently wanted to atone for his behavior, issued a light sentence. In prison, he started writing a memoir in the hope that his story would help others avoid a similar fate. Newspaper affiliates published sections of his autobiography under the headline, This is a story of a person who walked a lonely street. By 1955, he was a free man. Krolik moved to Tucson, Arizona, where he started painting murals for Franciscan monks. His redemption seemed secure. Then, on August 20th, he relapsed. Krolik attempted to hold up a liquor store in El Paso. Owner and operator Delta Penny was used to people robbing his store. He was also used to taking care of those who tried it. Before Krolik, Penny had shot at eight would-be robbers. Krolik was number nine. Sadly, this time the bullet actually struck its target. Krolik died from his wounds. His obituary printed the same evocative phrase that had made him famous two years earlier. A few weeks later, Florida songwriters Tommy Duran and May Boren Axton somehow came across the story. Moved by the tragic arc of Krolik's life, they wrote a song about him, incorporating the phrase from his obituary into the opening verse. After a few rewrites, the song became about a failed relationship instead of a life of wasted potential. Though the heartbreak was still there, Durden and Axon's song introduced the world to Elvis, forever changing music history and earning a quirky place in chart trivia. May Axon's son Hoyt followed his mom into the music business, so he's got that going for him. In 1970, he could not think of any verses for a melody stuck in his head, so he wrote down some nonsense placeholder lyrics about a sexy bullfrog that he could change later. Before he could rewrite it, soft rockers The Three Dog Night went ahead and recorded it with its near-gibberish lines intact. The band doubted the song's potential, but singer Chuck Negrin insisted they release it. Negrin is not always the best judge of character. This is a man who had so much sex with groupies that his penis exploded, literally splitting in half. This time he made the right decision. The song called Joy to the World spent six weeks at number one, making it the biggest hit of 1971. This means Mae Boren and Hoyt Axton are the only mother-son pair to both write number one hits. Sure, it was with lines written by a dead felon and one so stupid that they were never meant to be released. But hey, 
A hit's a hit. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. So long. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs)